What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. And Cole is actually on vacation again this week. Um, he's him and his family uh, taking some time, but uh, in his stead, I have the soon-to-be Doctor <laughs> Matthew Brock. Matt, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Got big, big shoes to fill today, everybody. Yes, so. there you go. So uh, Matt is a fourth-year uh, PharmD student at the uh, university or the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. Um, which is also where Cole and I both graduated from, and uh, he's on rotation with me this month. So we're gonna do a patient case, and I think is a pretty good one. We saw this patient in one of our rural sites. Love it, love it. And uh, it's definitely one that I think covers a lot of cool topics. So we're gonna try to knock this out. Knock that in. Um, but before we get started, Matt, uh, what's uh, you know so far? You've obviously you're on my rotation, which is an Amcare type situation. What yep. have you? What other rotations have you been on? Well, so far, just I went back home, which was actually at um, it was actually more of a virtual one, but it was with QS one. So okay. everybody in the pharmacy world kind of knows, or at least in the independent pharmacy world knows QS one. And then my second one was at a vet. Um, a vet is actually a vet hospital, so there's no pharmacist there, but I got to see a lot of cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, stuff you'd never even imagine. Yeah, and uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize that there are um, pharmacies that work in the veterinary space. They do actually. As I was leaving, they were in the process of hiring one uh, pharmacist. Yeah, yeah a oh, pharmacist. That's cool. Like she did a, the whole vet residency thing, and so huh. she's moving back to. I think she's from Charleston. I, don't remember her name, but it's not Marissa, is it? It might be. I don't know. Is it Marissa Ollander? Uh, it could be if if you're listening. To yeah. I'll have to text her after this. She's been on the on this she, podcast a couple she times. She blonde hair. Yeah, like, super blonde hair. I'm pretty sure that's her. Okay, yeah, pretty sure it's like blonde hair and then bleach blonder. I think that's no. Her. Marissa's fantastic. She's great. She's been. Uh, she just finished her vet residency. Yeah. Um, or vet medicine residency, I guess. But yeah, graduated from MUSC a couple years ago. Yeah. So, so that's sure. I think she's back her. in town. Maybe that is awesome. Yeah. Good. For good her. for her. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. If if you haven't listened to that podcast with her, and because her uh, her husband's uh, an ED physician. Oh. Um, wow. So he's he's doing emergency medicine and all that, and then she. Um, did pharmacy school but uh, if you ever want to hear someone who's passionate about what they do Mm -hmm. listen to her talk about animals and like vet medicine it's yeah you can tell the second you hear her talk she's born to do that but um yeah so uh qs1 that was kind of interesting was that's not really clinical on that side it's more on the business software type side what did you think of that it was it was strange because well i wasn't it was still covid times kind of so i was didn't really get to see much of the the workings of it but um, I, I know that they're in the process of revamping a lot of things and basically you get to see a lot of the ins and outs and it's a lot of presentation, you know, it's a lot of regulatory stuff. So mm-hmm. things, uh, you know, if you want to implement something and you're a you're nationwide or a worldwide company, you have to make sure that it's cool in every single state. So you have to do all that research beforehand, then propose it to their board of pharmacy and then go through that entire process, which can take months. So. Uh, so when you're doing a rotation like that, are you working with people who are pharmacists or software engineers or had all the above? It, it's it's a mix. I was with um, a pharmacist. He's been around a long time. I, I believe he was um, Ed Vest is his name. He uh, was one time the uh, president of uh, SCPHA in South oh, Carolina. Wow. So um, he's kind of gone into that role, and he's uh, he deals with more of the pharmacy side. And then I think he relays a lot of that information to the software engineers and that side of things. Cool. So, That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, so what, uh, actually, I do want to ask you this. What before, yeah. you know, like, do you have an idea of where do you want to go after graduation or do you, are you still kind of leading up in the air? I mean, I would, I would love to own my own pharmacy. I, like I think dispensing uh, yeah. independent pharmacy, I, and, you know, I, keep doors open, right? You yeah, know? yeah, there you keep go. Doors open. But you know, I, I think that's, I like the idea of building something and, um, calling it yours. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, you would know, right? Like this, you building this is, but for me, I, I think that that would be 
something I would enjoy yeah. day in day out. It, you know, it's not like the nine to five. Maybe it's more probably gonna be more hours than that. But I would I'd enjoy it. So yeah, you know, it to have something that you can call yours, like your baby, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. and watch it grow over the years. That's what I would love to do. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, are you, uh, do you do anything with like the business side of things at all now? Or cause you, well, I, if I, I'm going to basically <laughs> teeing you up for uh, maybe something you've been involved in recently. Yeah. 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 So speaking of, uh, yeah, so I was a part of a team, or well, still part of the team, um, at MUSC, uh, our NCPA chapter at NCPA, we are or at MUSC rather, uh, we entered in the business plan competition for NCPA and we actually made top three in the country with our business Ooh. plan. Yeah. And so we will compete this October for the, you know, first, second, or third place in the in the country. We'll go give our presentation, and then we'll see where we land. It's uh, just our, our business plan, since we were talking about animals, is actually a kind of mock business plan for mm-hmm. a uh, independent vet compounding pharmacy located in the Charleston area in Mount Pleasant. That's awesome, man. So, so and third in the country, or like top three in top the country. Three, yeah, it doesn't and give then, you a placement so and, far. And but. then you'll compete with the other two to see who, what happens if you win. If you win, you get three thousand dollars for your chapter, and then you get three thousand dollars for or for the college. So, and then there's also, I believe, there's some kind of uh, another conference that they kind of tee you up for, and you go away. There's it's a nice hotel in Florida for their next conference, and so you get, nice. you get admission to that and all that. So, and you know, there's publicity and the, everything else that goes with it that you know isn't the prize, but you know, if somebody sees your work, you know, and that's what it. I was gonna say. I feel like that could set you up for some investors getting right. eyeballs on you. Right. I mean, it never hurts to be in front of people and start talking. Yeah, you know? yeah. Especially if you're first in the country. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's awesome. Are Are you doing the MBA program or anything on top of? what you're doing yeah actually i completed that already did you oh sweet okay that's awesome that's done (laughs) how how was that you you know it's 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 different it's actually i kind of think of it as a break from pharmacy school where because you're diving in with the medications and all the clinical stuff but then business to me is more like um not that pharmacy is not a puzzle but this is a different side of your brain almost Mm -hmm. and so you have to think of it with a different perspective and i enjoyed it it was a break for me so it was like a mixture of online and in person and you get to meet some people that are well established in the careers that aren't pharmacy related at all. And mm-hmm. you get to see that side of things, which is you know nice. Yeah. When you're in class and stuff, your classmates in the college of business, are they kind of like, wait, you're doing what? Cause you're like doing dual degrees like that. Yeah. A lot of times they're like, wow, wow. I can't believe you're doing that. I can't, I can, you know, I'm, I'm doing this and I, it's a lot. You know? And I'm like, well, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I don't sleep, but that's okay. There you go. It'd be worth it when you're done. All right. So this patient case, um, is like I said, it's somebody we saw in a rural setting out in one of our um, satellite sites. Uh, we go out there once a month now, and and so um, Matt was with me, and we, we, this was actually not even originally a patient that we were supposed to see. They were coming in for um, COPD management, so we were there to do diabetes management. But um, the nurse practitioner brought us in to kind of get our opinion on where to go with the meds. So to give you a little bit of background uh, information, this, this patient's had a few different COPD exacerbations over the last year and a half or so. Um, has had multiple uh, cases of pneumonia, and a few four, of them have, I think four. it was four or five, yeah. yeah, it was a lot, over the last few years, and um, has been uh, hospitalized a couple times because of the pneumonia specifically. Um, still having symptoms, you know, the, the dyspnea is still a factor, um, as well as the exacerbations. Mm-hmm. Um, came in on Simbacort and uh, was taking that um, scheduled and um, was, I think, had an albuterol inhaler as a rescue inhaler, but mm-hmm. I think hadn't even picked that up in a while, um, but uh, was just on those two meds. 
um, was seeing uh, pulmonology, but I think it was an issue with um, cost and things like that that was beginning becoming a problem. So our pharmacy does have Simbacort fairly cheap, which I think is why they ended up just pushing the patient on that one. Um, but, uh, however, we will talk about what we did, um, cause we have another medication that we just were able to get down to a cost effective, nice. um, spot, but, um, to kind of talk about his other comorbidities, which we will also go over. Um, he also has peripheral arterial disease. He has a history of, um, angina, which he doesn't have, it wasn't very clear in the note cause he is being followed by cardiology. It wasn't clear in the note. It, it sounds though, like he has uh, vasospastic angina as opposed to mm-hmm. like, um, angina coming from ischemic heart disease. So we'll talk about the difference in, in a little bit when we get to the meds and things, but, um, it looks like he has uh, vasospastic angina, um, it hasn't had any, um, like significant issues and his symptoms are fairly controlled when it comes to that. Um, and then he also has hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia. He has had an ischemic stroke, um, I believe four years ago. And, um, he also has a diagnosis of diabetes, although he is completely controlled with um, diet exercise, all that good stuff. Um, so, uh, in the, oh, and he's a tobacco user, so mm-hmm. he smokes um, a pack a day, and so um, he's also open to the idea of of maybe quitting, um, especially since this COPD has been giving him problems. That's good. <laughs> yes. So uh, he is uh, somebody who um, has a lot going on and uh, a lot of problems with the medications. Yeah. So give you an idea of what he's on for his uh, COPD. We already said he's on Simbacort and then Albuterol as his rescue inhaler. Mm-hmm. Uh, for his PAD, he is just taking aspirin and he has... Um, Simvastatin, 20, 20 milligrams 20 yeah. um, as well. And uh, for his um, vasospastic angina, he is on uh, amlodipine, uh, which is also being used for his hypertension, mm-hmm. um, as well as isosorbide mononitrate, 30 milligrams a day. Uh, he is taking lisinopril, uh, 40 milligrams, and the amlodipine, um, both for blood pressure and yep. his angina. And then he is on, let's see what else he's taking. Um, am I missing anything? I think that's, um, that covers all the ones we talked about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and some, yeah, some, we mentioned the some of the 20. Okay. Yep. So, um, lots and lots of, to kind of go over, but I guess we will start with COPD. So what was your first thoughts, Matt, when you saw his current regimen? Ideal? <laughs> Well, no, and I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I think, remember, I think he was also the one that was using samples of Brzezetti. Was it, how you say that, Brzezetti? Yeah, it's the new triple um, inhaler, which is the Laba Lama ICS. So it's like the new uh, triple inhaler. So it's the competition now that Trilogy has. Uh, okay. um, so he, I think he had gotten some samples of that one, mm-hmm. um, but he wasn't really sure. So he brought in the Simbacore and that one and didn't know, really know where to go. I think, yeah. So I think it was like he uses those, but then really he's using Simbacore. It was really probably the main one he was using. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the major red flag for us is the history of pneumonia. Uh, like I think his most recent hospitalization was back in April. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, you know, red flag, right? <laughs> Yeah, and the, it's one of those things that we, this you see this a lot. You have patients that come in, you know, we you see this a lot with Advair and some of the older LABA ICS. You know, providers will put the patient on like Advair, whether they have asthma, whether they have COPD, they just know it's the one that controls, you know, the patient's overall day-to-day symptoms. They put the patient on that as a controller. Uh, the problem is, 
you know, from a physio or pathophysiology standpoint, you know, they're very different. Um, and, and we, we almost use like the complete opposites of the treatment mm-hmm. algorithms when it comes to treating and managing. Simbacor, you know, is all the rage now in asthma. Right. Um, which makes sense because it has the, you know, asthma has the inflammatory component and, mm-hmm. and the ICS really does make sense f- from a patho standpoint. However, with COPD, you know, it's it's more so you're getting this, you know, paralyzation, if you will, of the cilii in the lungs and they're not able to um, bring up the, the mucus from that is kind of you know, formed from the globulate cells and all of those different um, uh, properties where, where when you have this particulate or these, these um pollutants or whatever it is in his case smoking um you produce this this mucus secretion well that's supposed to be then brought out of the lungs by those cilia however his are kind of not working properly Mm -hmm. because of the chronic smoking and so that mucus gets it's kind of stuck and then that triggers even more mucus production and so you just get this you know drowning yeah yeah chronic obstruction over time And um, so, you know, from a mechanism standpoint, we typically would try to start from more on the muscularinic side. So the the llama, um, those, especially with patients with more severe disease, do tend to be a little bit kind of more effective, um, whereas those are saved more towards last line and asthma. So they're kind of opposite that way. So for him, he's being treated on something that would be a little bit better if he had just asthma going on. Mm -hmm. COPD is not going to be as effective. Plus, the ICS puts him more at risk for pneumonia and things like that. So, which I mean, we see, <laughs> which he's now yeah. having. Um, and I think that's a good uh, kind of segue into what you're kind of talking about with the flame trial, um, talking about the LABA and LAMA associated with reduction and uh, rate of annual CPA, CP, uh, COPD exacerbations compared to the LABA ICS uh, combo. Um, so there you go. I mean. Uh, and then also to keep in mind with this patient, um, his, um, eosinophil count was, is not, was not elevated. Yeah, it was it's normal. Not normal. Normal. So. And so that's the, the real question that, you know, what it was, is an IB or, um, ICS llama or LABA, is that yeah. going to be better or worse than a LABA llama, you know, compared to head? And we didn't have yeah. that data until the flame trial came out. Um, which was uh, comparing the adverse, so somedrol and fluticasone mm-hmm. versus indicatorol and glycopyranine. Um, and so you had that uh, LABA-LAMA combo. Um, now, this, page, or this, this study um, included over 3,000 patients and um, followed them for a year, and they were basically looking at the uh, annual rate of COPD exacerbations. Um, this included patients who were 40 years and up, um, as well as um, former smokers that had a 10-year or more pack year history. And uh, in this, they also included the patient's um, M- MRC score as well as their CAT score. And uh, that's the other thing this patient really hadn't been um, kind of worked up for is they hadn't done a CAT score, they hadn't done the uh, MMRC. And those are going to be kind of important when it comes to initiation of therapy to kind of figure out where we're starting the patient on, on therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, if the, the basic kind of rule of thumb would be if the patient's um, CAT score is above 10 and they have a um, MMRC that shows a 0 or 1, I'm sorry, less than 10 on the CAT score and MMRC 0 to 1, then they're going to be more on the 
the right or the left hand side of the square. So if you, mm-hmm. if you see the goal guidelines, the COPD guidelines, you'll have like these four quadrants and the uh, left side of the, that table is the, the, the lower CAT score, the lower MMRC score. Mm-hmm. If it goes above MR, MMRC goes two or more or 10 or more on the CAT, then they get pushed over into the um, right hand side of the quadrants. And uh, so basically it can kind of help you dictate where the person's starting at from a um, initial pharmacological treatment. But this person's already on treatment. So that kind of pushes us then to a different set of guys. A different well yeah. <laughs> or not in, in, different set, but yeah and different it, algorithm. Exactly. And so like the with the gold guidelines, they used to kind of just give you the initial therapy and then go just based on those same um, A, B, C, D, you know, gradings. But with this, now they say, okay, we want to target therapy to either help with dyspnea or help with exacerbations. Mm-hmm. Um, technically this patient has both um, that he's dealing with. But uh, it's interesting because the patient, if you look at the dyspnea um, algorithm, it says if the patient is on a LABA ICS, they recommend switching that to a LABA LAMA. Mm-hmm. And that was based on data from the flame trial. Uh, because what they ended up seeing is that uh, when they compared the LABA LAMA to ADVAR, um, that they saw that you decreased um, COPD exacerbations, improved, um, you know, the dyspnea, um, it, as well as things like annual rate of moderate to severe exacerbations, difference in change um, of FEV1 from baseline. Um, so some other benefits as well. And it's just one of those things that it, we have clear data now that shows that the LABA LAMA is a better choice for this patient. Mm-hmm. Um, now, cost being an issue. Uh, luckily, we're, we're in a, a position, luckily, at my clinic where we have 340B Pharmacy attached to us, and so we're able to actually put him on a Nora Ellipta mm-hmm. um, for like $20, and he's able to afford that. It's actually cheaper than a Simbacort, so he was super excited about that, and um, we were able to get him on that. Where would you go if you weren't it's a regular retail. What would there, you do next? There's, uh, first, I would check with if the patient does not have like any insurance whatsoever, then I would see if the company has any sort of like true patient assistance. So usually when we say patient assistance, we're thinking like copay assistance. It's uh-huh. like the little card you can download. Right. Most companies have for their brand name medications, they have like patient assistance, like programs that you can apply for. You have to verify your you know, income. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to show that you don't have insurance and, you know, basically that you need the help financially to afford them. And most programs will be able to get patients the medication at free, depending on, again, depending on what it is. But, you know, things like Trulicity for diabetes or um, even like the real expensive hep C meds like Eplusa for, you know, treating hep C. We did one today, right? Yeah, was that the, yeah the, completely the, for free yeah. and just basically showed the patient's low income and doesn't have any insurance and how else are they going to get treatment. And the company pays the, you know, foots the bill and, and covers it for them. Okay. So there's so many of these programs available. Um, the, other, the other option is if you're in a clinic like we are, you can contact the drug reps, have them come in, get samples. I mean, there's lots of nice. different ways. Until it goes generic... Once it goes generic, the cost will go down anyway, and we can you can kind of right. go from there. But now that it's brand name, there is definitely there's no generic uh, Lava Llama, right? Not that I'm aware. I don't of. think so. Either. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, and the thing is, is let's say Anora didn't have a patient assistance program. Uh-huh. Well, they have Stielto, they have right, right. the you know Bavespi. I mean, there's all these different um, potential Lava Llama combos. One of them will have. Something. Something, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and like that's the big thing is just finding the patient assistance. And it's going to take some work and somebody to actually do that. Um, but, yes, you can get patients on the right therapy. Mm-hmm. So putting them on something 
crappy. But just, that's a real big plus of pharmacists. Absolutely. I think we're really, you know, we're teed up to do something like that. I yeah. Mean, well, and we have the time a lot of times, right, more right. time to do that than like a, you know, a physician assistant or a physician, you know, because it's one of those things that they're seeing 20, 25 patients, 30 patients a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, we usually have less patients we have to see. And so the time that we have in, you know, downtime, we spend doing things like this, getting patients access to the medication. Right. So what we did is we switched the patient to a Nora and, um, you know, kind of looking down the road, um, there's a, if we're looking based on the guidelines, um, if we're looking at the exacerbation target that the algorithm has, mm-hmm. um, they basically say that if the patient's coming in, they're on a LABA ICS, then kind of consider whether or not the patient has any risk factors for pneumonia, which the patient definitely does. Absolutely. Um, and then if the, if the, if the LABA ICS was started incorrectly, then to switch them to the LABA LAMA. So that's where we're at now. We, we did that. Now from there, if he's still having exacerbations, so still being hospitalized, um, the guidelines say to consider adding on the ICS, you know, at that point, if his eosinophil count is above a hundred uh, or a hundred or more rather, if not, then they skip over the ICS completely and go um, assuming that the FEV1 is less than 50 um, and then that the patient has chronic bronchitis. Those are the other two stipulations. Um, but if those things are also true um, and the patient's eosinophil count is normal, then we can add on reflumalast or Delaresp, which is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor that's a, actually a, taken orally um, that has been shown to decrease the rate of exacerbations in COPD patients. I think that's one that a lot of patients aren't familiar with or haven't, a lot of providers aren't familiar with, but that's a good one to kind of keep in, in your back pocket for hospital. It won't increase like the patient's lifespan. That was my question. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. Unfortunately, it won't increase their lifespan. However, it does give them a better quality of life because they're not having to be admitted to the hospital and all Mm -hmm. that good stuff. Is there, so what is, uh, you mentioned our guy's a smoker. I remember azithromycin. Is that a potential option? So, you know, the the guidelines say that it's basically a former smoker because former smokers are going to be more prone to getting um, H flu infections Uh causing pneumonia as well as there is an anti-inflammatory properties of azithromycin that can help. But then you run into the problem of, okay, you're putting someone on azithromycin, antibiotic. We already have a ton of macrolide resistance. Do we really want to have someone long-term on azithromycin? Maybe uh, not. Maybe yeah. Not. I see Z-Packs in a regular retail pharmacy like, every day. Yeah. And it'd be something that I would leave that up to see, you know, what um, pulmonology would say. And, you know, that would be one that I wouldn't be super keen on myself. But, yeah. That's smart. But at least we have kind of like a game plan going forward. Mm-hmm. But And we're getting him off of the ICS, which he's been on for quite a while. So I think that might have been uh, putting him higher risk for, you know, getting that community-acquired pneumonia. And so just, uh, just as a point of clarification, so we would also keep their albuterol rescue inhaler because the volantarol... Uh, does not have the same onset of action that albuterol does, correct? Yeah, correct. So when we talk about like the, for instance, like Simbacor as needed, like with asthma, um, that's because the the uh, from Motorol specifically, that LABA is the only LABA, um, at least that I'm familiar with, um, that is, is the same or almost the same onset of action as albuterol. All okay. the other ones, Selmeterol, the rest of those, those are going to take a lot more to kind of kick in. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they use that one for like as needed purposes in asthma. The problem is with this, we don't want the ICS, so we stick with the traditional albuterol. And and really, um, they've actually, if you remember um, Combavent, um, so it is the uh, Sama and Saba combo. So, um, we know the albuterol, um, 
component of it, but the ipotropium, the uh, short-acting muscarinic antagonist, mm-hmm. um, in again, kind of thinking about it as a anticholinergic effect where drying up some of those secretions in the lungs as well as getting some dilation and then you get some um, dilation on the beta cell side or the mm-hmm. beta receptor side um, then uh, you, you're kind of getting it from two different angles and that's been shown to be better than either agent alone and COPD specifically so comb event is the uh, combination of the two now we don't have a way of getting that one cheap for this patient so he's going to stay on albuterol mm-hmm. but in a perfect world we would probably put him uh, on a Saba Sama combo if we could and use that as the rescue use the anora as his controller okay so that'd be the first big change uh and then kind of hopefully kind of keep him uh, out of the hospital and go from there so copd check nice nice pad pad um so he's currently on aspirin and then uh i guess you could count uh simvastatin that he's on Mm. even though that's trash (laughs) (laughs) but um the he's on aspirin 81 milligrams a day and uh I don't know if you guys have seen this, but um, there is actually been an update to the American Diabetes Association guidelines for patients specifically with PAD. Um, And so they updated uh, the guidelines saying that instead of just aspirin, that you could consider doing aspirin plus low-dose Xeralto, meaning 2.5 milligrams twice daily as an add-on to the aspirin um, based on the COMPASS trial and the Voyager PAD trial. Um, so those are two kind of uh, large, big studies that have looked at patients with PAD. And the reason why the American Diabetes Association um, included those is because the patients who had the most benefit from the aspirin plus Xeralto uh, were diabetes patients that also had PAD. So this guy's this guy's diabetes is controlled basically just with diet. I mean, his, his A1C mm-hmm. last was uh, 5.6. Mm-hmm. So he's not quite the same patient that would fit in like the compass trial. Um, but it would definitely be something, uh, something to consider. So in, in compass, they, um, it took patients, they compared aspirin, um, plus placebo versus aspirin plus, um, rivaroxaban, uh, 2.5 milligrams twice a day. They also looked at five milligrams twice a day, but yeah. the, that seemed to increase the bleed risk a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, 2.5 milligrams twice a day was superior to aspirin and placebo. Um, when it comes to, the um, composite of cardiovascular death, stroke, non-fetal MI, um, and then also in, uh, had a trend towards improved mortality by itself. Um, again, especially when you look at the diabetes patients kind of separately. But it was a 1.3% absolute risk reduction in that primary composite. So this patient has uh, had some uh, – he's had some – were stents placed, I think, in his legs, right? Yeah, from two, two, two back in 2019, he had two stents placed. Yeah. So he's he's definitely had some issues, um, and you know we really want to preserve his limbs if possible. So we know his diabetes is under control, um, but we got to make sure that uh, we at least give him an opportunity to um, keep his his. Uh, limb perfusion proper and um, that he doesn't run the risk of an amputation or anything. Um, so that would be one thing to consider uh, would be the Xeralto as an add-on to his aspirin therapy that he's currently taking. Now, again, cost being an issue, 
Um, Zeralto for us, we can get uh, fairly cheap. I think it's like $15 for brand name Zeralto. And again, this is just our clinic. I've had a few patients, uh, or a few, not a few listeners rather, um, mm-hmm. email me and be like, I think you uh, said the wrong price of some of these. Med- <laughs> this is, when I say prices, I'm talking about my clinic because we have a very special yeah. you know dose or pricing because of 340b and all that stuff right. um so we're we get we're very spoiled but i'm with the rest of you though i see it all the time yeah, yeah. um the problem is though Zeralto 2.5 is not one of the ones we can get cheap since it's like the newer strength we right. don't have we, we get it cheaper than like a retail pharmacy but nowhere near like as cheap as like Zeralto 20 would be right so um we would have to look at a patient assistance program and see mm-hmm. what we can do I will say um, the company that does that makes uh, Zeralto 2.5 milligrams is definitely pushing um, the use of Zeralto 2.5, especially in patients with PAD and diabetes. So he kind of fits this criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would imagine that they have some some patient assistance programs going on right now. I'd have to double check myself on that, but I'm I would be willing to bet that's probably something that would be not too hard to find. You know, I kind of thought that Zeralto was going to be generic pretty soon. I heard that. Did you hear that? Uh, I have not, but that doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, that's just something I've, I've heard. You know, maybe well, just with a quick Google search, um, it says maybe into that in twenty twenty one. So I mean, oh, maybe. sweet. So who knows? Well, there you go. Maybe problem solved. All right. See how long it actually takes to get the price down, though. All right. <laughs> um, all right. So PAD, we're thinking. Um, continue the aspirin, maybe adding Zeralto 2.5 twice a day. Right. There is a bleed risk, though. I mean, do we talk about that? No, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, in what the COMPASS trial, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we do have that uh, ARR of 1.3, but there was also uh, increased ARR in the major risk bleeding. Uh, 1.2%, I believe, was with that one. So it is a really a, a risk versus benefit type situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our patient case, I mean, uh, I mean, he's an older gentleman. I don't know if we talked. Uh, he's a 72-year-old yeah. male. So, I mean, it's something to consider for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. To me, it'd be something, a conversation worth having. With for them. sure. And that's kind of where I would leave. For this patient, I, to be honest with you, I really don't even, because he wasn't seeing me for this particular thing, I, I it would take some more discussion and looking into the, the cost of it and all that before I would fully make a decision. But... Mm-hmm. It would be something to at least consider and kind of have in the back of your mind at least to make sure you've been thorough. Is there, and this may be kind of off the wall question, but yeah. is there a benefit for the Zarelto in, oh, we haven't gotten to his post-stroke yet, but Zarelto in, uh, or any kind of anticoagulation after stroke or no? So usually if, if we're going to use something like anticoagulant, it would be because if the stroke was due to like patient with Heart. AFib, okay, yeah. then maybe so that we don't get that built, like the potential of that clot forming in that left atrial appendage of the heart. Uh-huh. Um, then we would use, you know, if his Chad's vast score, especially if, it's, if he had a stroke, his Chad's vast score would definitely indicate that he needs anticoagulation. In that case, we would probably do it. But usually if it's directly after a stroke, um, we're thinking more aspirin plus clopidogrel, ticagalor, one of those antiplatelets as opposed to anticoagulant. Okay. But every once in a while you'll have a patient who's on antiplatelets, two different, you know, dual antiplatelet therapy, and mm-hmm. they also have AFib, so you need them on anticoagulation as Oof. well, and that's a whole, that's, yeah, a lot of bleed risk. Yeah. But that's, that's, we're going to, yeah, off topic, that's like uh, not, not <laughs> our patient who doesn't have AFib, so unfortunately um, that wouldn't be as helpful, that, but, you know, the low dose could at least preserve, uh, potentially help his... Something. Has improved that limb outcome. Um, so he's also got uh, a history of angina, which again wasn't fully like written out as far as uh, 
you know, what was causing it, if it was true, just like stable ischemic heart disease. Um, it looks to me like he's got um, vasospastic angina, which is also referred to as like Prince metal angina, or mm -hmm. it used to be called variant angina. Um, it's, and that's where you get this chest pain due to like a vasospasm of the coronary arteries. Um, it can happen, you know, you know, even at rest, but it's not something that's usually associated with like this underlying um, coronary artery disease like you'd see with angina that's due directly from you know a patient who's had ischemic heart disease so um i think the in the and one of the other reasons why i think that that's the case as far as which you know his, his actual diagnosis is the the medications that he's on so if we're thinking about like the treatment options for treating a patient with symptomatic angina we typically start with um, nitroglycerin, sublingual nitroglycerin mm -hmm. as needed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the bet, which this patient doesn't have. So I'm assuming his engine is not really giving him much of an issue since that doesn't seem to be on board. Um, but usually the patient will have those nitroglycerin um, tablets that are taken sublingually. Um, and, you know, if they have a, a, a episode of angina, then they would take a dose of that, um, wait for five minutes, and then they could take another dose, uh, wait for five minutes and take a third dose, which is usually the max. Um, and then at that point, they're, hopefully the ambulance is on the way. And, <laughs> go yeah, to the hospital. And go to the hospital to see if they have acute coronary syndrome or see what's going on. Um, and then, you know, making sure there's a lot of different patient consultation points and things like that when with the nitroglycerin as far as, like, keeping it in the original dark glass container and all that good stuff. Um, but uh, he doesn't have that on board, um, so I'm assuming he hasn't had any issues with the, the symptomatic, like, being symptomatic with his angina. Mm. Um we typically would start a patient on a beta blocker to control the symptoms. However, if it's vasospastic angina, we do not um, use a beta blocker in that particular case. Um, and so basically a, a beta blocker can actually, um, you know, besides it not being effective, it can actually increase the um, occurrence of that coronary vasospasm um, because you get this like unopposed alpha receptor activity. Mm, okay. And so um, it can actually make it worse. And so we don't use beta blockers in those patients. We would use a, or use a calcium channel blocker, and uh, which this patient is on amlodipine. Mm -hmm. So that does kind of make sense. Um, and so if we're thinking about kind of like the uh, you know, management of, of um, angina, then we usually start with a beta blocker or a, a non-dihedro calcium channel blocker like um, diltiazem. And then from there, uh, if, or if it's vasospastic, we go right to a calcium channel blocker. Um, and then from there, if we need additional, um, you know, if you're still having additional symptomatic angina episodes, um, then we would base, basically add on either a long-acting nitrate, which he's on, um, but we also have our uh, Renvella as another option. So that's um, one thing that uh, he could potentially add on if his symptoms started to come back and started to bother him again. doesn't sound like that's an issue, but again, just kind of thinking ahead so we have something in our back pocket, um, or at least so you can apply it to another patient. Um, the uh, I'm sorry, I said Renvella. I meant Renexa. I'm an Renexa, idiot. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, the uh, Renalazine, um, Renexa, not Renvella, not to be confused with our uh, phosphate binder. <laughs> um, so the uh, Renexa, excuse me, somebody at home was like, this idiot. Um, Different but, episode. Yeah, there you go. Um, but basically that's helping to um, help by decreasing the myocardial oxygen demand as well as kind of decreasing the oxygen consumption overall as well. Um, some things to keep in mind is it can cause QT prolongation um, and it can also uh, 
cause acute renal failure if a patient whose uh, creatinine clearance is less than 30 um, is on that. So you got to be real careful. Um, it doesn't really have any effect on heart rate or blood pressure. So it's not going to be something that's going to drop the blood pressure any lower. Um, so whether it's vasospastic angina or regular ischemic heart disease, in, you know, due to angina due to that, then um, they can also use this as an add-on as well if you're worried about you know, the patient's blood pressure dropping too low, um, this, this can be an add-on agent that uh, you can put on that you don't really have to worry about that. Um, it is a substrate of 3A4, so to watch out with strong 3A4 inhibitors and uh, inducers. But, um, yeah, it's another add-on that you could put on this patient if you needed to. Um, he doesn't need it at the moment, but have that in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. All right. So the other thing with, you know, kind of going with his uh, – angina and potentially heart disease on top of his post-stroke and uh, his PAD and all that other stuff, Mm -hmm. um, all point in the direction of what kind of statin? (laughs) Well, a high-intensity statin, preferably one that has some evidence behind it. And is simvastatin that guy? Man, it's not looking like it. It's It's not. It's not. Not good. It's just not. (laughs) Um. So, you know, I, I don't know if it was, th- he's been on simvastatin for a long time. So I don't know if this was started because of, um, you know, the patient worrying about uh, cost or something, you know, back in the day or what the case may be. But simvastatin 2 or 20 milligrams is, is definitely a um, lower dose, um, a moderate, moderate intensity not statin. It's not where he needs to be. So just from a, just from a, PAD standpoint, you know, PAD is one of the criteria for a patient having established ASCVD. And so according to the dyslipidemia guidelines, um, that would be an automatic high intensity statin, like right off the bat, just for that. Boom. He's also had a stroke, ischemic stroke. That's another, you know, reason why we put him on high intensity statin. So if we think about things like the Sparkle trial, where they put a patient on a tour of 80, kind mm-hmm. of post-stroke, um, they uh, saw a decrease in the rate of secondary stroke when it comes to ischemic stroke, um, TIA. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't get the same benefit with hemorrhagic stroke, unfortunately, but um, with ischemic stroke, we want to make sure the patient's on the high-intensity statin. So a Torva 80 was used in Sparkle. Um, we have, uh, like, the TNT trial yeah. um, in that, you know, was also a Torva 80, which compared directly to a Torva 10. Didn't see any difference in adverse effects, but did decrease the patient's um, uh, stroke, stroke non-fatal and yeah, fatal mortality or, all that good yeah. stuff so there's and we can go on and on about all the different studies that have looked at uh, a tour of 80 the takeaway for that is not only do we need to get them on high intensity statin but um, the other concern is if a patient is you know you know, first starting off on a higher intensity statin, one of the kind of the strategies could be, um, or at least often is, you know, start them on a, a lower dose, like 20, a Torva 20 or a Torva 40 even, and then move up to 80. Um, all the studies are done with a Torva 80. I think I, the ideal study was the only one that, are, that used a Torva 40, and mm-hmm. that was only for patients who couldn't tolerate 80. So all the outcome data is with 80 milligram atorvastatin. Um, and so, you know, I would actually argue, and if you listen to the dyslipidemia lecture, or not lecture, the podcast we did, <laughs> um, we, we talked about this a lot, but the, uh, I would actually argue that putting them on a Torva 80 right off the bat, one, fits with the data, but, but right. also two, if they were to have like those myopathies, myalgias kind of pop up because mm-hmm. they, you know, that's one of the risks of, of statins telling the patient, okay, well, let's cut your dose in half now and dropping it to 40. 
sounds a lot better than the patient being put on 40 and then saying, hey, you're not having any side effects? Cool, we're going to double your dose even though you don't <laughs> feel any different. It's a harder sell in my opinion. Yeah. So I typically try to start them on a tour of 80, and then if they're having myopathies, myalgias, then I either reduce the dose or remember you can also switch to resuvastatin, which is also a high-intensity statin um, and a more um, hydrophilic statin. So it's not going to have as, as high of a volume of distribution. It's not going to get into the tissues as, as uh, well. And so um, you're going to have less myopathies, myalgias, and all that good stuff. So um, not as much data with resuvastatin. They do have some, like with Jupiter and things like that, but um, not as much outcome data as as a Torva. So I do tend to go with the Torvastatin over resuva, but have that in your back pocket. It's 2040, right? That's the high intensity for that? Yep, yep. Okay. And they'll tell you too. Your patients tell you, like they'll oh, tell especially you, especially oh, with like, statins. Oh yeah. Oh, they will oh, tell you. Oh my leg, or, or yeah, they'll, they'll definitely. You'll know. But um, yeah, so that's uh, his statin. We need to definitely switch that up. You know, and the other thing is with his simvastatin. Um, remember, simvastatin interacts with amlodipine. So the mm-hmm. max dose of the simvastatin you can be on is the 20 milligrams because basically when you're on um, simvastatin and amlodipine together, you are increasing the uh, area under the curve, um, con- you know, concentration of simvastatin by up to four times. So basically it's like taking 80 milligrams of simvastatin, which if you, again, remember from the dyslipidemia the podcast we did, uh, that is no longer even recommended because compared to 20, you didn't see a difference in outcomes. So if you're trying to use the simvastatin 20 to kind of, um, in that interaction to kind of justify, oh, he's actually getting simva 80. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's still a Torva is a much better option. Go with that. And then you can also bump up the amlodipine if you want to, since he's only on five milligrams. All right. What else besides, before we go into hypertension, anything we haven't, we missed uh, so far? Let's see. I think we've been pretty on top of it. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, so what about his hypertension? So it, his most recent readings uh, were, so his most, so he did two, right? So 155 over 88, that was the first one, and then a repeat was 142 over 84. So not quite a goal, you know. We're looking at, we're wanting to go under 130 over 80 is what we're looking for, and he's already on his amlodipine 5, and he's on lisinopril 40, both once a day. So, I mean, we have some options first, maybe... With lisinopril, without changing or adding anything, so your lisinopril, you know, would benefit. So you can split in half, take uh, half in the morning, half in the evening, and extend that area of the curve, you know, get more coverage, and then, so that's one possibility. Uh, And also, too, if you think about the half-life, it's only 12 hours. So it makes sense from a kinetic standpoint mm -hmm. to dose it 12 hours as well. And um, we, I know you guys, have, we talked about this in the last hypertension episode, but the uh, if you think about like the paper that was done where they compared lisinopril 20 twice a day to a Torva, four, or, I'm sorry, not Torva, to lisinopril 40 once a day, so 20 twice a day versus 40 once a day, um, you got almost an uh, additional 10 millimeters of mercury drop in the systolic blood pressure just from splitting the dose. So that's wow. definitely a good option. Sorry, keep going, Matt. Oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, you could... Uh, he's only... Uh, M-Lodipine 5. So, he's on 5. There's options to move up with these um, with these ranges. Uh, I mean, also... I mean, you could add a third agent. You know, I think we like endapamide. Uh, that's a that's a good one. Um, he is... So, if you if you look at the HIVET trial, um, he's not quite 80 years old yet, but then the older population, it was studied 80 years, 80 years old plus on the hypertension treatment. With um, so they studied endapamide, I believe it was 1.5 milligrams, uh, with or without the ACE, and it was um, 2.5, sir, or the 2.5. Okay, 
uh, with or without the ACE, it was associated with the trend towards reduced rates of fatal and non-fatal stroke, which is good for our patient, all-cause mortality as well, and CV outcomes. So um, I, I think in the trial, too, their goal, goal blood pressure was uh, less than 150 over 80. And in fact, I believe it was stopped early because of that 21% reduction in all-cause mortality. So Yeah, so that's definitely a good outcome data with, with endapamide. The other thing is, uh, if you think of the PROGRESS trial, they took perendopril, um, you know, in patients who had had a previous ischemic stroke, either given perendopril or the combination of perendopril and endapamide. And the endapamide added to the ACE inhibitor was the one that decreased the rate of secondary stroke. So mm-hmm. that kind of also fits with this patient. So let's look at it from like kind of as a whole. So if if this patient only had hypertension and no other comorbidities, just hypertension, then I would be a lot more willing to say, okay, let's do, um, you know, let's maximize what he's currently taking uh, because we know that like uh, the ACE plus calcium channel blocker Mm -hmm. um, does tend to uh, provide better outcomes when compared to an ACE plus at least HCTZ. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about adapamide, so I think we're going to get better results. But, you know, I do normally like the ACE-CCB combo. um, And he's also got, again, room to go where we can kind of split the dose of the ACE. We can go up on the amlodipine and, you know, everything would be totally fine. I think that would be Mm -hmm. a perfectly normal option, probably a lot better than adding a third line. This particular situation, because he's he's had a stroke in the past, um, he's also, one thing we didn't mention is he also has um, CKD, to, oh. um, and so his, his EGFR isn't that low at this point. I think it's uh, 62. 62, yeah, um, that's right. So, you know, it's not like we're, you know, worrying about this rapid renal decline or anything. It's been, you know, he's 72. That's not like anything super concerning. Um, but with endapamide, you know, we also can have some of that... Uh, that renal protection almost um, because there was that study that compared uh, HCTZ versus endapamide in patients with kidney disease Mm -hmm. and saw that uh, with HCTZ, you kind of continued continued the decline of your EGFR, whereas with endapamide, EGFR actually went up. So you actually like improved EGFR. And so that's some kind, you know, some some uh, renal protection there, um, as well as because this patient's had a stroke. You know, adding the endapamide to an ACE inhibitor does has been shown to reduce the rate of secondary stroke as well. Mm-hmm. So for him, I would say if we are going to add something, we could keep the doses of his other two meds the same, yep. and then add endapamide. If that if we're too worried about the kind of uh, effects on his blood pressure, then I would say in this particular case, amlodipine would be the one we can get rid of and replace it with endapamide. For sure, yeah. And, you know, again, we don't, the accomplished trial is one you've heard us talk about a lot, but um, that was HCTZ, not endapamide. Right. So I would argue, if I was a betting man, I would say <laughs> uh, the endapamide, benazapril, if that study was redone with, with benazapril mm-hmm. instead of HCTZ, would probably do just as well as the amlodipine benazapril, if not better. Yeah. I mean, the accomplished trial has real... Has- good real world data or effic- you know, you see HCCZ is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. A lot. A so lot. that's, it's, it's applicable for sure. But in this for case, sure. I think we have a winner in endapamide. Yeah. So I think, you know, like I said, this patient, his blood pressure still got some room to go. His, his goal blood pressure, 
if he doesn't have any side effects of the blood pressure medicine, would probably be 130 over 80. Mm-hmm. He is 72, so we could probably relax that a little bit if we needed to. Um, you know, I would relax to maybe 140 over 90 if we had to, but that's the most I, would, I wouldn't want to go like 150 over 90 if possible, just because he has so many different comorbidities. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so it would kind of just depend on how he responds. Um, but nothing wrong with replacing amlodipine with indapamide in this case, just based on his, his comorbidities. Oh, wait a minute. Amlodipine or lisinopril? Um, I would say keep the lisinopril and add indapamide and, and replace the amlodipine. Okay. So, okay. Because then you have the ACE indapamide combo like you saw with progress. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Anything else before we talk about tobacco? Mm, tobacco. <laughs> What's it all about? Mm. So, um, and I don't have this guy's uh, Fagerstrom you know, test results kind of in front of me, but he has been smoking for... Many, many years. Yep. He said he couldn't even remember when he started. Um, and so, you know, he's having about a pack a day. And, and you know, there's a f- several different options we could go. We could do just the nicotine replacement. Um, we could do the veronoclin. We could do bupropion. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, because he has a higher uh, nicotine dependence, um, we probably would need to go with two different agents together, uh, which we could do like the the patches for nicotine replacement plus using like a lozenger gum for kind of like breakthrough cravings. Um, we could use the varenicline in combination with like the gum or something like that as mm-hmm. well. Um, we could use uh, bupropion and varenicline in some cases. Uh, there's, there's lots of different options we could use. Um, now one thing that, uh, to keep in mind is that um, there was a, a meta-analysis that looked at different options for patients that have um, that need smoking cessation and also have chronic um, cardiovascular disease. And the one that seemed to be um, the most, uh, the two options that seem to be the most effective is either the varenicline or the combination of the patch and gum nicotine replacement. Varenicline by itself? That's what they said in the, okay. in the study. Okay. Now, um, if single therapy is not... Um, sufficient, then you can do um, varenicline plus a nicotine replacement, mm-hmm. single vehicle or a single um, dose, you know, administration. So not like the patches and the gum, but like one or the other. Right, right. I would probably say the gum would be a good option in that case. Um, and then you can also use the varenicline or bupropion is another one that they do say. But varenicline is the one that they say is their first choice based on a patient who has cardiovascular disease on top of needing smoking cessation. But really, there's no like wrong answer. Um, with varenicline, I think you're going to have some uh, probably easier time um, taking it. Uh, now, if he's having any kind of like, because again, one of the one of the side effects of varenicline is things like uh, nightmares and very vivid mm-hmm. dreams. If the patient is having experiencing that, you can always drop the second dose down to taking it below or before 3 p.m. That can help with the having the. Um, you dreams. can still smoke with that too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, you can still, and and hopefully, if he's having a craving, that's where the the nicotine gum or lozenge can come in. On top of the vernaclen, mm-hmm. would be, you know, taking or adding that for like cravings, like breakthrough cravings. Yeah, because um, yeah, then there's definitely gonna be certain things like, um, you know, whether it's. Dri- driving home from work in the car, some there's gonna be certain triggers the, that kind of habitual, yeah, like, absolutely. You know, just- um, and then kind of getting him, hopefully, with a counselor and things like that um, would be ideal as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, offering him those would be a and good then, you good know, option. Maybe telling him that, you know, it'll help your COPD, too. You there know? you like, go. You might be able to Absolutely. breathe a little bit better. If you're not chronically smoking. <laughs> right. So go back over recap. We got for COPD, we're switching the Simbacort to the Enora. Yes. Um, we're keeping him on um, the albuterol inhaler, although if we had... 
perfect world, we would switch into the comb event right. and do the albuterol and ipratropium together. Uh, but that's not an option in this case, so we're going to keep the albuterol as the rescue inhaler. Mm-hmm. For his PAD, we're thinking to continue the aspirin daily, the 81 milligrams, and then adding on Xarelto 2.5 as long as the risks of a bleed don't outweigh the benefits there. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to his angina, it seems stable for now, and so we're just going to keep those um, as is the calcium channel blocker plus the isosorbide. Right. Um, he, wouldn't hurt him to have a, a short-acting PRN nitroglycerin just kind of on standby. Yeah. And we also have our um, other option, the um, Renexa, is a kind of an option as an add-on Relief. if we need to. Yeah. Um, and then with his statin, we're switching from Simva statin 20 to, to a Torva 80 and then and going from there. Um, and then for his hypertension, we are either adding on endapamide or stopping the amlodipine and adding on endapamide, yep. depending on how well his blood pressure can handle that change or, you know, whatnot. Yeah. Um, and then smoking cessation, even giving him varenicline or varenicline plus a, um, a nicotine replacement for breakthrough cravings. Oh, and I think, I don't, did you mention the, maybe in our back pocket for the COPD, the, the reflumolast? Yes. Yeah. And then keeping that, if he's still having exacerbations, again, two caveats with that one is that he has to have an FEV1 of less than 50, and he also has to have um, chronic bronchitis, which yeah. I think he does anyway. Oh, yeah. So um, we'll have that in our back pocket in case we need it. Okay. And then uh, making sure, obviously, he just does his normal routine stuff, getting his vaccines, mm-hmm. all that good stuff, and then uh, monitoring from there. Well, Sound good? Yeah. His diabetes, hopefully, will stay controlled with diet, so we don't have to add that to the mix. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think, did we miss anything? Is that it? No, that's it. Cool. You got, yeah, everything. Yep. Go team. Woo. <laughs> so um, I think we'll, we'll probably talk about this um, off the air, but I think what we'll end up trying to do is put this into like a word, like a document, like a, maybe a blog post type thing. For sure. And I'm putting it out so you guys can, for those of you who are more visual learners that it, want something tangible on paper. It's really good for students, by the way. I mean, this type of thing, uh, I mean, it, patient cases will leaps and bounds have you doing and learning more than you could ever just learn by looking at a, a slide, you know, a slide deck and just having to try to memorize this root from root memory. Absolutely. I mean, it helps me to this day still, you know, I love yeah. patient cases cause it helps kind of solidify all that stuff that you're yeah. seeing on PowerPoint slides and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll work on that and see if we can make something like that, uh, available. And then, um, other than that, though, if you guys have any questions, um, we will uh, be available through our emails. Cole and I have our emails in the show notes. Um, and then uh, maybe if, if uh, Matt is cool, that I'll put like his Instagram handle or something in the show notes if you guys want to connect with him. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I also will have the, our website and all that in the show notes. Um, if you guys have any like specific questions that you want to send over through a direct message on any of the social media platforms, that's awesome too. Um, you can text us directly at 415 nine four three six one one six and i'll do my best to get back to you as quick as i can if with your clinical questions in that uh over that platform um and then also thank you guys so much for those of you who have subscribed on patreon uh, i hope you guys are enjoying the lectures we got a lot more coming on there uh, we got all the endocrine lectures and stuff coming up soon and um that'll get posted on there and then we got all kinds of stuff women's health and psych and stuff planned through the fall so i hope you guys are liking uh the patreon stuff lots and lots of more to come on that and uh, i think now it's up to 80 or 90 lectures and there's 
put like thousands of PowerPoint slides on there. So check that out if you haven't already. Good stuff. And, um, you know, if, if the $3 a month or the $30 a year is too much, you know, if you're a student or whatever, hit me up. We can, we'll, <laughs> I'll figure something out. I'll just give you a copy for free or you can bootleg it or whatever. So, um, you know, I hope that's uh, helpful to you guys as well. But, um, yeah, we will be available if you guys have any questions or comments, concerns, any of that good stuff. It's been a Other pleasure. That, Matt, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. See you guys next time. Have a good one. See you all.